Good evening and welcome back to another edition of Bring Out the Best in Your Spouse, Your Children, and Yourself with me, your host, Rabbi Israel Roll. Tonight's program is being sponsored by the acclaimed website of Dr. Abraham Tversky called 12 Steps to Selfesteem.org. That's the number 12 steps, the number 2, Selfesteem.org. And this week's special presentation on the website is a 12-step program for happiness. Happiness for teens, happiness for adults. Just join us on our website and take a look at the free samples of the program and get a taster on how to achieve happiness in life. A communal announcement. This summer I'll be running a program for Beis Yaakov High School Girls in Israel, a five-week intensive learning program called the Taste of Seminary Experience. This is for girls going into grade 10, 11 and 12 on three tracks. The location will be the Darche Bina campus in Bayit Vagan, and we'll have a series of programs in Jewish thought, machshava, learning, and tiulim for five weeks of intensive, inspiring experience in Israel. For further information, please contact me at summersem at aol.com or call me at 410-585-0497. Tonight's special guest, is Dr. Mordechai Glick. Dr. Glick is a PhD in clinical psychology and is in private practice in Montreal in a clinical practice in psychotherapy. He's a professor of psychology at Champlain College in Montreal and he's the Rav of a small shtibel called Avat Yisrael. He has smicha from Yeshiva University and is the president of Nefesh International, the International Association of Orthodox Mental Health Professionals. Good evening, Dr. Glick, and welcome to our program. Good evening. Dr. Glick, there's a famous saying where grandparents and grandchildren have a an affinity, a special bond. They're united against a common enemy, the parents. And we know that in psychology and in psychotherapy, there is an issue of in-law involvement and in-law interference in family life. How significant is the in-law issue in terms of interfering in family and marital life? It certainly can be a uh, potentially very serious and significant issue, but it doesn't have to be. Some of the issues that or some of the uh, aspects that that affect how significant it is are how close the uh, uh, the husband and wife, the husband and collar are to their parents. Obviously, a close relationship provides the possibility of greater difficulty. Um, if they are living very close to one set of parents, in particular one set and not the other, that certainly provides the opportunity or the possibility of difficulty. By the way, none of this means that there will be. It just means that those are situations that, that increase the likelihood that if there are problems, that the problems will create difficulties. Um, and it really depends a lot on the individuals as well and their particular relationships with each other and with their parents. And it's, it's a very complicated issue, but it's obviously an important one. When children, when a young couple is faced with such interference, would you suggest a meeting with a psychologist to clear the air and put issues on the table? Uh, it certainly might be useful. Um, you know, I, I, I guess maybe I should say at the outset, I don't think of a psychologist as someone who does magic, or even really, well, I was going to say they have specific skills, but I, I take that back. That's not really true. Generally, psychologists do, or at least are supposed to have specific skills. That's what they're trained for. Uh, but what I want to say is that 
there's nothing magic about a psychologist. I mean, if, if a, a family is close to a Rav that they respect, it's certainly very appropriate for them to discuss with the Rav an issue like that. This is not really a, an issue that a psychologist needs to be involved with. He could be. Certainly, a, a, you know, a, a, a psychologist might be very helpful in that kind of situation. Um, but it could be, really, a Rav would be very appropriate if it's somebody that uh, the Chazan Kalabos uh, respect and the, and the parents. That certainly might be, uh, to me, it in fact, would be a logical first choice. I'm often confronted in my practice, Dr. Glick, with one of the spouses in a relationship is willing to come to counseling and the other person is not. They feel it's your problem, you deal with it. Right. How do you approach the other spouse to convince them or to convey the message that we have to deal with this together? I don't have any uh, there as well. I have no magic formula. Um, you try to uh, to cajole. You try to explain why it would be important. One thing that sometimes works to get the the spouse that does not want to participate uh, to attend is by both. Let's say it's the, the husband that doesn't want to be involved, and the wife very much wants to do something. The husband doesn't want to go. It's your problem. You go yourself. Sometimes having the the wife. Uh, approach the spouse by saying, you know, I've met with the, with the psychologist and he feels it's very important that I have problems and it would be helpful if you would come in so that you can help him understand me and maybe help us find ways of helping me overcome my problems. So that might make it a little bit less threatening for the other person to come in. Sometimes that works, but often it doesn't. The important thing here, though, is even if it doesn't, that doesn't mean that nothing can be done. Often, when the when the when the one of the uh, one of the couple refuses to come in, then people don't come. But I don't think that has to be. I mean, this is, this requires a special kind of person. But uh, I've been seeing a young woman. This is actually to me uh, amazing. Uh, I've been seeing her for just several months. She came in together with her, her husband. They've been married for several years. They have children. She's absolutely com committed to the marriage. There's no way that she's going to leave. The fact is, her husband is an extremely difficult person. He's very aggressive. He's very defensive. He's, he's, he, he says things that are inappropriate. He's socially inept. Uh, very, very difficult person. When he was sitting here with her in my, in my office, I was feeling very uncomfortable because virtually anything I said he would take personally, get angry about, start yelling, or what have you. It was clear to me that there's no way that I could work with him. Um, and I told her that afterwards. And I suggested that she might want to come herself. And she agreed, which I was impressed with, because generally, as I said, they, people don't, in that situation don't. She came herself. We've been working together for not that long, maybe three months at tops. And um, she, uh, she, this, this is an unusual woman, because, as I said, her husband is extremely difficult. And we've been talking about ways for her to deal with him differently than she has in the past, in ways that might help reduce some of the difficulties, some of the, some of the pain that she goes through, and maybe even lead to some changes. And here it is three or four months later, and there have been significant changes, in, not only in her and her, her, and her quality of life, but in him, in their relationship. Um, and I'm not surprised about it. What I am surprised is it's unusual for that to happen because usually one person will say it's not fear. I don't want, I, I shouldn't be carrying the whole ball. He doesn't want to come. That's the end of it. Um, so I do think that one person alone possibly can make a difference. So you're saying here that in the idea of 
family systems. When you inject one change into the family unit, family system, that change can be affected. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this, Absolutely. This... I just had another case, a woman that I saw last night that I've been seeing for quite a while. She's been working on her own ang- anger problems. She came primarily to deal with her own issues, um, but uh, it's come up a number of times that part of the issues spill out to her relationship with her husband. Now, I've met her husband because I had them in together a couple of times, so uh, it's clear that he is he's not an easy person, not terrible like the first example I mentioned, not really that difficult, but he's certainly not... He's not the kind of husband that a, that a, that a woman would dream of having. Uh, he's somewhat difficult. And for her, he's extremely difficult because she has anger problems to begin with and it goes back to childhood what happened. So she really came in to deal with her anger issues. And she's been doing quite well. And she came in last night and told me she was starting to think that maybe I've been talking to her husband secretly because over the last few weeks, he's like a different person. Mm. And this is, and I said to her, you know, I, I I'm very impressed, and I, I find that's wonderful to hear. Um, but you might not realize it, but you have changed, and you might not think it sounds possible, but simply the fact that you have changed inevitably will lead to a change in, on his side as well, and that is indeed happening. This idea of change is seems to be a new byword or a revealed byword in psychology and psychotherapy today. It used to be the stigma is that we're going to talk and talk and talk and go to psychoanalysis and you'll talk for many years and nothing will change. But now the focus on, on solution-oriented therapy is that we're talking about short-term therapy, five, five weeks or 10 weeks or 15 weeks, to affect change. What is your view on the idea of, of impressing upon people that we're here to change? I think that's clear. Obviously, that's what motivates people to come for help to begin with. They're not coming just to, to spend money and spend time. They're coming to to see some results, to get some relief some of the, from some of the difficulties and pain that they're they're going through. So I think that that's really what people want ultimately. Uh, most people have been led to believe what you said before that in fact uh, the only way to do it is by very long-term, intensive, deep uh, analysis or therapy. And the truth is there probably is a place for that, and it might really be true for certain individuals. On the other hand, it certainly is equally true that certainly in some cases, at the very least, um, just making a change in behavior is possible. And when you make a change in that behavior, uh, there is, in fact, a domino effect, and the environment seems to change as well. Talking about anger, Dr. Glick, are there techniques where a person can employ to assuage or calm or get in control in terms of anger management? Not the movie, but the, the process? Of... <laughs> uh, certainly there are, and those are some of the things that, indeed, that a person would work with a psychologist on if he or she were interested in trying to, to deal or control the, their anger. Um, I find that, again, related to what you mentioned before, they find that it is helpful at least to have an idea of where the anger is coming from, because usually the anger is not is not related to what's going on in their life now. They blame it on those things. I'm angry because he should, did this or she did this or they said this or because, I don't know, the situation, my boss, whatever. They, they look at the outside world as the cause of their anger. Uh, but almost inevitably, when people are angry and others look at that and say it's out of proportion, it's not really out of proportion. What they mean is it's out of proportion to the stimulus. It's out of proportion to what's going on in your environment. You're more angry than you really should be. Most people in that situation would not be angry. But the reality is it's not out of proportion because they're angry. They don't realize it, of course, but they're angry not for what's happening now but for what it reminds them of. In other words, they have a sore spot. 
They have a, they have a, 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 a something that's tender in them, and whenever you touch it, it's a little bit like somebody has a sunburn, and they come back from lying in the sun for a while, and they come back and they have a terrible sunburn in the shoulder, and the best friend sees them, he's so happy, he comes over and slaps them on the back, and this person starts screaming. What did I do? I, I, you know, I just want to be friendly. Well, indeed, a slap in the back, a friendly slap in the back can be very warm. It's very nice. But when a person is tender, because their back has been burned from, from exposure to the sun, or when, when one's psyche has been burned or hurt by previous insults, especially those that, that have gone on for a long time in childhood, uh, then the person is sensitive. And even small insults can lead to, to very strong reactions. So people first need to understand a little bit of that and then to try to find uh, methods of coping that can help them deal with it differently. How does this idea of uh, being aware of, understanding where the anger is coming from, let's say it comes from a lack of love in childhood or too much criticism or too much, too much pressure from parents growing up and not getting enough love, how does understanding that help the current situation in terms of the actual facts on the ground? Well, um, it is dramatic how much how we feel or how we react to things is affected by how we see things. In other words, how we, how we label something, what we expect, what we think is normal, what we think is desirable, that will dramatically impact on how we feel about something. So, for example, with in marriage, I mean, I, I do a lot of work with, uh, with marital problems, and very frequently I, it's clear to me that the cause of most, not all, but most marital difficulties are unreasonable expectations that people have. And when people expect things of marriage that are not normal, even though they think that they are because they look at other people and think they have this wonderful marriage, of course, looking at it from the outside, everybody looks like they have a wonderful marriage. Uh, but the fact is that they don't, that they have problems because that's a normal part of marriage. But people who don't realize that, people who are convinced, as unfortunately most people who are in happy marriage are convinced, that there's something wrong with my spouse, usually that's their assessment, something wrong with my spouse, and these things are just unacceptable, it's impossible to live with it, and I, I can't go on. And so they, they choose to divorce or, or do something. If, on the other hand, they really and truly understood and believed that, in fact, it's supposed to be difficult, that the problems that they're having are not unusual, that he's not an ogre, that he's not a mean person that's trying to hurt me. He's a person with his own shtick, just like I have my shtick, and our job, part of our, our, I don't know, our, our role in, in, in this world as a married couple is to learn to understand each other and to tolerate one another and to overcome so, those problems. So if a person begins to change their assessment, how they see things, it really changes. Then the, the issues might be the same, but how we feel about them are not as, as upsetting. So if one has expectations, the idea of I expect to have a wonderful family life and a wonderful Shabbos and a wonderful relationship with my wife and a close relationship, and it's not happening, then do we counsel them saying, well, change your expectations and lower your expectations? Is that how the expectations change? Well, generally, in fact, when I, be, when I do marital counseling, I do often begin, or at least toward the beginning, spend some time trying to t explain to people or help them understand what marriage usually really is like. And in most cases, now obviously there are exceptions, but in most cases, people who 
think that they have a terrible marriage probably really don't. They just are expecting it to be something that it's probably not possible, or it's a process. I mean, I, I don't know of anybody that has... There are wonderful marriages, really and truly wonderful marriages. It is possible to achieve what most people dream of when they get married. It is possible. I know that for a fact that that's true. People can have incredible fairy tale marriages. They are available. But they are not available the week after marriage. They come only with tremendously hard work and effort and time. And with that time and with that process of somehow overcoming, dealing with, uh, somehow managing the difficulties and going beyond them, as time passes, you start to develop that kind of deep love that can only come as a result of marriage, not that comes before marriage, which is the error that most people have. So the problems can be a catalyst to a deeper relationship. Absolutely, 100%. That's certainly true in life in general. People grow dramatically often. They can at least from difficulties. Dr. Glick, you founded some eight years ago an international organization called Nefesh, a professional association for Jewish mental health professionals. How did that come about that you decided with some colleagues to get together and provide a, a framework for professional development for uh, Jewish professionals in this field? Okay, so first I needed to correct something that you said. I did not start it. I was involved at the beginning only in by the fact that I participated in the first conference. I saw it advertised and went. It actually began with a group of uh, mostly psychiatrists and a couple of psychologists in the New York area who decided that there's really a need for orthodox professionals somehow to, to come together to learn from one another, to face some of the problems that they, they're dealing with, and to learn. And so they established this organization, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. I've been president for the last, I think, four years and was very active in other ways before that. My, actually, my term is coming to an end this coming conference, which will be uh, the end of this month, um, and there's a new, con- a new president-elect uh, that will be taking over at that time. Uh, but it's it's a tremendously important need and has has been successful beyond our imagination. What kind of areas does this conference, forthcoming conference on December 29th, Wednesday the 29th of December to January 2nd here in Baltimore at the right. Hunt Valley Marriott, what kind of issues are going to be addressed at this conference? Well, like most uh, Nefesh conferences, one of the things that's dramatic about them is, first of all, that they are very wide-ranging. Uh, they deal with every conceivable area of difficulty that people experience. Community problems, communal problems, individual problems, personal problems, child abuse, uh, learning difficulties, virtually everything. Can I just look over some of the some of the topics that they're going to be dealt with? And these are just a little tiny sample of, of a very large uh, collection of presentations. Um, there's something on, on educational issues, uh, methods to address school-wide behavior, uh, learning disabilities, causes, assessment, intervention, um, it's psycho- uh, social and behavioral education for children, neurodevelopmental issues. Those are, that's something obviously very important. You have stuff relating to um, adolescent depression and suicide, and actually that's interesting because that, that presentation is going to be done by uh, a world leader in this particular area of research, David Brent, uh, who's probably one of the, uh, as I said, probably one of the people in the world that is most um, respected in this particular area. He's going to be dealing with issues relating to adolescent depression and suicide. Um, we have 
there's something coming up uh, that's, that's quite interesting. To me, it's fascinating. You know, we see these nutritional supplements and homeopathy and all kinds of things that, that people are very into and very um, impressed by. Um, and I'm sure that any thinking person has to wonder, do they really work or is it all hype? On the other hand, do they not work, even though some people claim that they don't? Um, unfortunately, up until not that long ago, there was very little real research. And so it was just one person saying this and another person saying that and what have you and, and all the wild claims that the manufacturing companies were making. Finally, for the last few years, there is somebody at the National Institute of Mental Health who has been doing high-level scientific research on this, and he's going to be doing a presentation on the clinical use of botanical extracts and nutritional supplements in the prevention and treatment of psychiatric disorders. That's really quite fascinating. There are presentations on substance abuse. Um, there's a uh, presentation on uh, an area that I think is, is very important, often, uh, again, uh, hidden from, but very important, uh, the shit of process with psychiatrically and developmentally disabled population. I think that's tremendous. We actually dealt with this before, um, but uh, it's, it's one of the topics. And there are many, many others, hypnosis, uh, uh all kinds of panic disorder, what have you. So it's it's a very wide range. And again, one of the one of the most impressive things is the quality of the presenters, the range of the issues that's dealt with, uh, the fact that Nefesh has never shied away from dealing with an issue, even though it's sensitive, even though people are uh, uh, afraid of it or have difficulty dealing with it. Um, we can only be useful if we can if we can deal with things head on. So is this open only to social workers? professional clinicians, psychologists, psychoanalysts, or is it also open to the public? Well, the, um, the organization is a professional organization. In other words, an organization, association of professional, orthodox mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and allied professionals. There are some rabbis and, and educators and people from other areas that, that are involved as well. But it's essentially a professional organization. And therefore, the conferences are professional conferences. That means the presentations are on a level that lay people would not be able to follow, would not be appropriate for them. So essentially, the conference really is just for professionals. Um, we try, when it's possible, to at least have something that's available when we have it in a community that's nearby. And um, what we're doing this year is um, uh, the day before the actual general conference begins on Thursday, uh, we have a pre-conference on Wednesday for people that are, are doing uh, intensive training with two very well-known trainers. And the evening session, the, uh, the Wednesday evening session, which will, in fact, be open to the entire community, is a showing of an award-winning uh, winning documentary on secret lives, hidden children, in the, and their rescuers during World War II. Fascinating. I've seen a lot of research on this. I've not seen this film, but it's supposed to be uh, very, very impressive. Um, it's a fascinating question. How come there were some, obviously not very many, but there were some non-Jews who were willing to risk their lives and the lives of their family to protect, to hide, to, to somehow shelter Jewish children or Jewish adults? And that's really what this, what this film is about, what this issue is about. There'll be discussion afterwards. I think it should be really worthwhile. So as you said, that, uh, that Wednesday night session, which is going to be at 8 o'clock, it's open to the community for a charge of, of $10, and it'll be at the Hunt Valley uh, Inn. And everybody's certainly invited and welcome to join us. Does one need uh, pre-registration for that uh, event? No, you can just show up at the hotel. It's a Hunt Valley Marriott on Wednesday night, December 29th, 
at 8 o'clock. Exactly. Are there other sessions, perhaps on Saturday night, that are open to the public as well? Um, as I said, generally not. Uh, the, the sessions are usually on a very high level. And um, yeah, in fact, actually try to discourage people who are not in the field from participating for several reasons. Number one, as I said before, the, these sessions are on a high academic level. So in order to get anything out of it or to understand anything from it, one really needs training. Um, and secondly, um, it's, it's often a problem. I remember when I was in the Rav Rav Yeshebiah Soloveitchik's shear. Actually, I come from Boston, and the Rav used to live in Boston. And he would commute between uh, Yeshiva University and, and Boston. And he would have, every Saturday night when he was in Boston, he had a shear in, in one of these schools Saturday nights. And at the same time, I was in a shear in New York. And when I was home for vacation, I would go to his, Friday night, his Saturday night shear. And it was amazing to me. Because he had people in the community, you know, going to his sessions, to his uh, shiurim, that were on very different levels. There were not very many people that were really high-level tamidi chachamim, but there were, in fact, quite a few people that had very little basic knowledge. And they were asking questions that were incredibly basic. It made a tremendous imp- impression on me because he was so patient with them and would explain basically olive paste to people that didn't know. So that was fine for that for that group. But for him to do that in a year in New York would have been very inappropriate. He would not allow people that did not have the minimal level of understanding and knowledge to be in a year because it would simply interfere with and, and you know not allow the shear to, to to function well. So that's really the issue that we're faced with. You know, I, I know that people on some level might gain from some of this, um, but as I said, it's essentially a professional um, uh, conference. So if there are professionals, social workers, psychologists. Uh, psychotherapists who are interested in attending the program, how do they get in touch with you? The best way is to call the Nefesh office. Um, the number there is 201-530-0010. And the person that you speak to will give you all the information about how to make arrangements if you'd like to attend and participate, and we'd be very happy to have you. So, you have, as I said, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers from around the world, literally from around the world. It's amazing. South America and Europe and uh, Israel and, uh, of course, North America and Iceland, I believe, somebody's coming this year. Uh, I think there's somebody from Australia. It's it's really quite dramatic and amazing. I wish you had Slacha Rabba in the forthcoming conference. Thank you very, very much. Dr. Glick, one last question, and that is the name Orthodox Mental Health Professionals, the term mental health itself. It seems to be there's a stigma in the Orthodox community against seeking mental health services because there's a stigma against something's wrong with me. How do we address that issue and, and assuage the fears of the Orthodox community that it's important, it's valuable, you can address your, your issues with a counselor, with a qualified, perhaps Orthodox counselor or a non-Orthodox counselor, but address the issues because it's important to be put these things on the table? Right. Well, unfortunately... I, we, there's, there's something called denial. That's a mechanism that we all have and use when we're facing things that are painful or difficult. When we're facing something that's, that's painful or scary, we try to deny it. We try to overlook it. We try to minimize it. We try to pretend it's not there. By the way, as an aside, that's one of the reasons that child abuse and domestic violence continues as it does is because we don't want to believe it. We hear stories or reports or what have you, and we say it can't possibly be. This person is well-known. He's highly respected. It's not possible. We use denial to avoid facing things that are very troubling. 
um, people sometimes can't use the word cancer because they somehow have the feeling that just saying it might make it happen or something along those lines. I don't think there's any easy way to change this quickly, but I think it is changing. It's simply a question of time. You know, um, just 20 years ago, people hid children with handicaps. They simply didn't go out. They kept them in an institution, or if they were home, they never took them out of the house. Today, it's difficult to be any place without at least occasionally passing people in wheelchairs, people who are amputees, people with all kinds of physical disabilities. And thank God for that. And in the religious community in particular, it is amazing how many chesed organizations have opened up trying to help families and individuals with problems like that. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But it's taken a long time to be able to be open enough to do that. Um, I remember years ago, I have, a, I have a daughter who's in her 30s now, and, and she's, she was born with cerebral palsy. She's, she's severely handicapped. I remember when she was a child, um, we brought her to the Hebrew Academy in Montreal. It's one of the community day schools. And we brought her. We have a friend who was teaching first grade. And so we brought her to her class. And it was amazing. It was very, very important. The kids got a lot out of it. The parents, when they heard, of course, were a little bit uncomfortable. But things have changed dramatically. And having a person or a child with special needs nearby is no longer scary. So unfortunately, this stigma, as you say, is, is certainly true with regard to mental illness or anything associated with psychologists. Um, but I'm sure that it's changing. And I can say without any hesitation, the people who are able to confront it or deal with it anyway benefit tremendously. There is help. And there are things that can change dramatically. Well, we have certainly benefited from your insights tonight, Dr. Glick. Thank you, and very, thank very you much. so much for joining us and look forward to having you back on the program in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good night. Okay, be well.